Good morning. Welcome to our time of teaching here at Community Bible Chapel. Tom is going to continue his teaching through the book of 1 Peter. This morning we'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Lord Jesus, may we always count you as precious. May we build only on your foundation. And may our lives demonstrate our obedience to you and love for one another, that we would be built up into one body unto you. Go before Tom. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. I love, Joe, I loved uh, your prayer just now. And uh, there was one phrase of it, one part of it. You said, <clears throat> may we always count him as precious. That's what this is about. Many of the men in the auditorium this morning participated in our annual men's retreat uh, the last day and a half, and the topic of the retreat was sexual purity. Uh, I believe all of those who were there for the duration of that retreat would agree that, that God used the, the teaching and the, the dis- times of discussion and the times of prayer to impress on all our hearts the, the gravity of God's call to purity for his people. From where I was sitting, there was one core principle that, that kept rising to the surface, especially in the, in, well, in the teaching and discussions, but even, even in the prayer times. One overriding principle of life upon which daily victory over sexual temptation and over every other kind of temptation stands or falls. It is the only enduring solution for our unholy, self-indulgent affections. All of them. And that solution is for our hearts to be filled with one superior, overriding affection. For the one who is alone worthy of our affection of our energy, of our effort, of our devotion of self. When we come to know the one whose beauty and preciousness make denying self and following him the only reasonable thing to do, then nobody has to twist our arms for us to follow him diligently. That is, in a nutshell, what this passage this morning is about. It's about getting that value proposition right. 
It is about the incomparable worthiness of God's chosen and precious cornerstone. At this point in his first epistle to all his fellow saints, Peter is still setting the stage for a a lengthy series of of instructions, of commands that will begin in chapter 2, verse 11 and will extend all the way through the end of of the letter. In the preceding passage, Peter instructed us to fervently love the brethren and he reminded us that we have been born again through the living and enduring, abiding Word of God. Then he commanded us to long for the same pure, unadulterated Word the way a newborn baby longs for its mother's milk so that we may, we who have been born and made alive by God may grow up in respect to our salvation. And then he says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter now continues in 1 Peter 2, 4, talking to us who have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And he says, and coming to Him as to a living stone, you also as living stones are and then he tells us what we are. And he tells us he tells us our identity and our mission. In verses 5 through 12, he lays out for us before before he gets earnestly into the exhortations, he lays out for us our identity and our mission. And we're going to look at that identity and mission in two chunks. First verses 4 through 8 today and Lord willing verses 9 through 12 next time. The one most important thing that we must see in that set of of verses, 4 through 12, is that everything that Peter is saying here is first and foremost about Christ. We look at this and we say, oh, this is about us. But it's about Christ. Our identity and our mission is all about Christ's identity and His mission. Every single thing that Peter's going to say here about us applies to us only because of what is true of Christ, the cornerstone of God's household. There's a very important parenthesis in verse 4. He begins by saying, and coming to Him, to, to the to Christ, to the Lord whose kindness you have tasted, he says, and coming to Him, as to a living stone, and then there's this parenthesis, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. And then he picks up again, as living stones, you also. Okay, now, if you read verses 4 and 5, if you pull that parenthesis out, it actually reads very smoothly. And coming to him as to a living stone, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. But you definitely don't want to pull out the parenthesis (laughs) because the whole passage hinges on it and not just this passage. The radical contrast between mankind's assessment of Christ and God's assessment of Christ has everything to do with the central theme of this passage and with the central theme of all the rest of this letter. Peter wrote this letter to fortify Believers, both then and now, to live for Christ 
in the midst of the many and various trials of this life, chapter 1, verse 6, and even in the midst of the fiery ordeal of severe persecution that will come upon us if we truly follow Christ. And nothing, absolutely nothing, fortifies us to live the way Peter will instruct us to live throughout the rest of this letter more powerfully than a right assessment of our cornerstone, Jesus Christ. As we saw in a separate message last week, the cornerstone in a building constructed in biblical times was a huge stone that served as the anchor to the whole foundation and thus to the whole building. The foundation of the building was built and oriented and anchored around that cornerstone. And all the other bricks or stones that made up the rest of the building were then laid upon that foundation. Peter's parenthesis in verse 4 captures very concisely the stark contrast between two radically different valuations or assessments of God's appointed cornerstone for His spiritual house. On the one hand, is mankind's assessment of of that cornerstone, and then on the other hand, is God's assessment. Peter explains God's assessment first, and then toward the end of this passage, he lays out man's, unredeemed man's assessment. In verse 4 and again in verse 6, Jesus is called a choice and precious stone, or cornerstone. The word choice here is the very same word that Peter used in the first two verses of chapter 1 to describe us. Believers, the people of God. He said that he was writing to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He uses that same word just a little later in verse 9 of this chapter that we're in, chapter 2, when he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." Here, in verses 4 and 6, he uses the word in reference to Christ, not in reference to us. And he says that Christ is, God, uh, Christ is God's chosen cornerstone. In each of those instances, the, the word points to God's purposefulness in setting someone apart for a specific role and mission. Jesus is the chosen cornerstone of God's spiritual house. We are God's chosen stones out of which He is building that house. The word precious expresses the surpassingly great value of God's cornerstone by God's reckoning. The Net Bible captures the meaning of both of these words very well. It says the cornerstone, God's chosen, God's cornerstone is Chosen and priceless. Chosen and priceless in the sight of God. And we must not miss the fact that Peter is attributing that assessment of the cornerstone to God, not to us. Jesus is chosen and priceless in the sight of God. That will be very important as we proceed through the passage. 
In verse 6, Peter cites the Old Testament verse in which God directly declares His own assessment of His cornerstone. 700 years before that cornerstone came from heaven to earth. Through the prophet Isaiah, God opened His accounting ledger and showed it to His people. He showed Israel and Judah His own valuation of the one upon whom He would build His spiritual household. The verse is Isaiah 28.16 and it stands out, if you go to Isaiah 28.16, which I'd recommend if you've got your Bibles handy, that verse stands out like an oasis in the middle of a vast desert. All the rest of that passage that surrounds that verse, verse 16, is about Judah's prideful rebellion against God and God's impending judgment against that rebellion. If you look just before and just after verse 16, you'll see how God describes their rebellion and how He describes His coming judgment. The leaders of Judah had made According to God, they had made falsehood their refuge. They had built for themselves a safe house out of their own deception. A house that they believed would protect them not only from their earthly enemies, but from God Himself. God says they had made a pact with death. They thought their schemes, their self-determined security would protect them even from death. But their grand plan that was supposed to secure their well-being was built upon a rejection of their God. God declared to them, He said, your covenant with death is going to be canceled. Your pact with Sheol shall not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become It's trampling place. He declares to them that He's going to sweep away their refuge of lies. And He's going to send a flood of judgment that will overflow their secret place, their safe house. God's going to tear down that safe house in a torrent of hail and rushing water. It will collapse in a moment of sheer terror. But right in the middle of that harsh warning, God says a dramatically different outcome is set before those who stand upon the foundation that He has built. The foundation whose cornerstone is His Messiah. He says in verse 16, Therefore thus says The Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And you'll notice that in it is added. It should be in Him. (laughs) He who believes in Him will not be disturbed. That last phrase is amazing. Will not be disturbed. You know what that literally means? It means He won't be in a hurry. 
Some of your translations show that in the marginal notes. He will not be in a hurry. The picture here is of a person standing in the only secure place to be found while all of those around him are being swept away by a violent storm and an overwhelming flood. That man is no, in no hurry to go anywhere else. He has no reason to move from the place upon which he is standing and he has every reason not to move because that's the one and only place upon which he is assured of well-being and security. It's the place of God's perfect protection and perfect provision. Beloved, that is the cornerstone upon which we stand. And His name is Jesus Christ. It makes no sense at all for us to stand anywhere else. As we stand firmly upon Him, we are in the one place in all of God's creation that is not only perfectly safe and secure, but wonderfully blessed. We are sheltered by God's mighty hand, and we are blessed by God's steadfast covenant love because we're anchored to God's chosen and precious cornerstone. And that which anchors us to Him is faith. Peter says in verse 7 of 1 Peter 2, the precious value then is for you who believe. We stand upon this cornerstone by faith. Faith in all that has been declared concerning Jesus Christ through the apostles and prophets Faith that God's assessment of Him is absolutely true. That He is chosen and priceless. See, Peter's Gospel is the same as Paul's. It is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we have been born again as God's redeemed and now stand on His perfect cornerstone. When Peter says in verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe, he's not at all saying that the value of God's cornerstone is determined by us. He's saying the incomparable value that belongs to Christ by God's reckoning is given to us. It's for us who believe. See, we receive the incalculable benefit and blessing of having that cornerstone as the anchor of the whole house that God is building out of these stones that He has brought to life. We have been made the beneficiaries of the supreme worthiness of God's cornerstone, Jesus Christ. It's the worthiness that He has opened our eyes, graciously opened our eyes, to rightly behold. But our acknowledgement of His worthiness adds nothing to His worthiness. And why does that matter? It may sound ridiculously obvious, but the sin into which every one of us is born leads us to think that the worthiness or unworthiness of whatever we encounter in this life is somehow for us to determine. And that's 
the very heart of man's foolishness. The faith by which we are made righteous in the eyes of God is not about us deciding that Jesus is worthy of all of our trust and of all our obedience. It is about us discovering, discovering purely by the gracious working of God in these stubborn and rebellious hearts that Jesus is worthy of all of our trust and love and obedience. It's about us discovering that God is correct about His Son. It is God's compelling testimony, God's assessment of His chosen and precious cornerstone that He has brought us to believe and embrace. The call that we set before before men is never, it is never, consider Jesus. It is never, try Jesus. And contrary to to words that I have often used in the past, it is never, what do you make of Jesus? What an insulting question that must be in the ears of our God who declares for all the world to hear that His Son is His chosen and precious cornerstone. The Gospel call, beloved, is a command. Believe God's assessment of His Son. No other assessment means anything at all to God. And by God's amazing grace, the priceless value that we behold in Christ has become the priceless value that we receive in Christ as a gift from God. Now that we've looked at God's accounting ledger, His assessment of His cornerstone, let's bounce back to verses 4 and 5, which gives us the ramifications of that assessment for us. In those verses, we find that what's true of God's cornerstone now determines what's true of us. (laughs) Jesus is the living stone to whom we come in faith as living stones to be built into His spiritual house. My original title for this message was Life in the Livingston Household. I think maybe we should all change our last names and we'd have to start calling Tom Dr. Livingston. I presume. Um, Verse John 5.21 Jesus said, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. See, God raised Jesus. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. And He handed to Jesus. Really always belonged to Jesus. He gave to Jesus the authority to give life to whomever He wishes. And He has given His life, His life, to all of those who trust in Him alone. Our life proceeds from His. We are living stones because He is the living stone. Look at Galatians 2.20 again. Alright, so now, coming to Him as to a living stone, we have become the living stones that make up God's spiritual house. And as those living stones, we have been given a sacred calling. Not just a new identity, but but 
amazing mission. We're not just nice-looking bricks filling up gaps in the walls of God's spiritual house. We have been given a marvelous identity and a marvelous mission. We've been chosen by God, set apart to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Under the Old Testament law given through Moses, the tabernacle and later the temple were earthly pictures of God's heavenly dwelling place. But more than that, they were earthly pictures of God's plan to create a more perfect dwelling place. One that would no longer merely be a representation of God's presence in the midst of His people. It would be God's presence in the midst of His people. Peter says, we are the living stones out of which God is building that true dwelling place. That true and eternally enduring temple. Not only are we the construction material, the bricks, if you will, out of which God is building this house for Himself and for us. Verse 5 says we are a holy priesthood called to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now what kind of priesthood and what kind of sacrifices is he talking about? In Romans 12.1, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. The sacrifice that Paul has in mind there in Romans 12 is the fulfillment in Christ of what was known under the law of Moses as the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering, very importantly, came after the sin and guilt offerings that were presented to atone for sin and uncleanness. The whole burnt offering was so named because the entire sacrificial animal after the offerer laid his hands on the head of that animal indicating his identification with the animal. The animal was slain and its entire body was presented on the altar to God. The priest didn't get a portion of that sacrifice to consume, to eat. It all went to God. That sacrifice was a vivid picture of the dedication of the offerer's entire life and being to God. It was a grateful response to the God who had graciously provided a blood sacrifice to pay for that offerer's sin. To make him clean. As the redeemed children of God, our sacrifice given back to God in the light of the incomparable mercies of God that we've received in Christ consists of us laying our entire lives on God's altar as a dedication of self to Him who has so wonderfully saved us. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says that our sacrificial love toward one another is in the eyes of God just as Christ's sacrificial love 
toward us is an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Hebrews 13.15 speaks of our sacrifice of praise to God. The fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. These and others sacrifices that are spoken of as New Testament Christian sacrifices are outworkings. They are expressions of our willingness and joyful presentation, willing and joyful presentation of our entire selves to the God who has redeemed us. The Old Testament sacrifices were just pictures. This is the reality. The third category of offerings in the Old Testament was the peace offerings. It was the pinnacle of the whole sacrificial system. It was the offering that came after the sin and guilt offerings that atoned for sin. It came after the whole burnt offering in which the offerer dedicated himself gratefully to the God who had paid for his sin, if he got it right. Then came the peace offerings, which amounted to a sit-down dinner between the offerer and God. See, in the peace offering, interestingly, it was the only offering in which the offerer himself got to eat a portion of the sacrifice. The priest got a portion, the offerer got a portion, and God got a portion. And they all ate their portion in a fixed period of time in the presence of God. Sit down dinner. It is a celebration of the condition of blessed fellowship and peace with God that is experienced by those whose sin has been atoned for by God and who have responded to that gracious gift of atonement by placing their entire lives on His altar, making themselves, yielding themselves to be completely at His disposal. And what follows from those two offerings is peace and fellowship, reconciliation, a celebration of oneness with God. Now think about this for just a moment. Under that Old Testament system of worship, each of the following parts of the worship system had separate identities. They were all distinct. There was the temple structure itself. There was the people of Israel, the offerers who brought their sacrifices to God. There were the priests who presented those sacrifices on on the altar. And then there were the sacrifices themselves. But God's spiritual house, His real holy temple of which the earthly one was only a picture is built upon one choice and precious cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus brings all of those parts together into one. Jesus is the perfect offerer because He's the perfect man. He's the perfect sacrifice because He is the one and only sinless man. He is the perfect priest. The one true mediator between God and men. And because He is the living stone, the choice and precious cornerstone upon which we are being built together into God's spiritual house, you know what that means? That means that we together, all of us who belong to Him, are in Him being made into the true temple, the true dwelling place of God. We are the true dwelling place of God in Christ. 
We are now his holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices of entire dedication to God and we are those sacrifices of dedication. We don't get to offer sacrifices of atonement. That's done. It is finished, Jesus said. We offer up sacrifices of devotion, of dedication, of entire self to God. Loving devotion. And those sacrifices then unfold into beautiful sacrifices of praise toward God and of love toward men that go up in, like the smoke from the altar into the nostrils of God as a soothing aroma that delights His heart. Acceptable to God. And the three words right at the end of 1 Peter 2.5 explain how it is possible that all of these same things that are true of Jesus have now somehow become true of us. And those three words are through Jesus Christ. That's our priesthood. Through Jesus Christ. Beloved, every single thing that defines who we are and why we're still here on this earth, every single thing that makes us useful to God is true of us only through Jesus Christ. That's Peter's version of Paul's powerful phrase, in Christ. Everything that's worth knowing about us, everything that's worth knowing about you, comes back to that which is true of God's choice and precious cornerstone. We are living stones in the spiritual house of God because He is the living stone. We are a holy priesthood because He is the holy priest. We present ourselves to God as acceptable offerings of dedication and devotion because He presented Himself entirely to God as the true and perfect whole burnt offering. We are being built up into the holy temple, the very place in which God will dwell eternally with His people because He is Emmanuel, God with us. And we are in Him. As we'll see next time, our priesthood is not only Godward, offering holy sacrifices to Him, it is manward, proclaiming the excellencies of the One who has saved us to the whole world. Our priestly calling, beloved, is the greatest job in the universe. But it's important to recognize that this priesthood is a corporate reality. The word priesthood that Peter uses only here and in verse 9 of this same chapter is singular, not plural. It's not about God taking a bunch of sinners and redeeming them and making them a bunch of priests. It's about God creating one holy priesthood. A community in Christ. The one holy priest. We together find both our identity and our perfect calling in the one perfect priest who will in the last day, according to Revelation 21, also be the one perfect temple. 
See, we're in this together. Everything that is now true of us is true because of what is true of Him. And that's why it is so indispensable that our assessment of God's cornerstone come from His assessment of His cornerstone. The more fully we know and trust in the incomparable worthiness, the pricelessness in the sight of God that belongs only to Jesus Christ, the more fully we will know who we are and why we're here. Because why we're here, beloved, is not actually about who we are. It is about whose we are. As we stand with firm footing upon God's chosen and precious cornerstone by faith alone, God wants us to understand clearly that He is a stone rejected by men. That's the other assessment. And we need, to get, we need to get this. We need to understand it. To unredeemed, unbelieving men, not only to the Jews who were supposed to be His own, but received Him not, John 1.11, but to all unbelieving men, Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Yet in the sight of God, He is choice and precious. The second half of verse 7 First he says, but to you who believe. And then he says, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isn't that interesting? He does not say, but for those who disbelieve, Jesus is of no value. Because God could care less what value men place on Jesus. As far as His Estimation, his valuation of his son. The supreme worthiness and value of Jesus Christ has nothing whatsoever to do with how he is received by men. Even for those who disbelieve, Jesus has become the chief cornerstone. He's just not their cornerstone. Literally, he is the head of the corner. Very interesting terminology, especially when you look at Paul's declaration of Christ as the head of the body. Jesus is the focal point and the anchor of God's entire building, God's spiritual house. The whole building is about Him. All of human history is about Him. The end point toward which all things are moving is Him. Whether men believe that about Him or not. The man who assesses Christ wrongly is like a man who decides he can defy gravity. He can be as resolute in that defiance as he wants to, but when he jumps off of the building, he still ends up at the bottom. Unbelieving men assess God's cornerstone wrongly. They see Him as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble over Christ because they find Him to be a provocation against all that they hold dear. Verse 8 lays out for us very straightforwardly, the cause of their stumbling. It is the very same thing that causes men to stumble over Christ today. They are disobedient to the Word. 
What is the word that they disobey and in what way do they disobey it? Well, I take this to be the same word that Peter was talking about a little earlier at the end of chapter 1 when he said the word that was preached to the people in Asia Minor is the word that they believed. The word by which they were born again. The word by which they grow. It is the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That word. (laughs) It's this word from cover to cover. The message concerning Jesus Christ. In Romans 9, Paul tells us exactly why the Jews stumbled over Christ. Romans 9, verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Paul's words. I have to think as I read, the more I get into Peter, I have to think these two guys talked a lot more than you find indicated in in Acts. Then Paul merges together two of the same Old Testament verses that Peter just cited in our passage for this morning. Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. He says, Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. What was the failure? What was the disobedience of the Jews that caused them to stumble over Christ? That caused the builders, the proposed builders of God's spiritual house to reject the very cornerstone of that house. (laughs) One word. Unbelief. Now before any who share my convictions about sovereign election get their kilts in a kink, let me say that I do not believe that faith in Jesus Christ is our doing. That it's something that we muster up. Whatever you believe, I'm just telling you what I believe. I believe faith, our faith is God's work in us just as surely as every other work that comes from us. And it is faith. It is not a work as other works are viewed in Scripture. It is belief. But beloved, faith in Christ is most certainly commanded Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in Me. That's why Paul speaks of the obedience of faith in Romans 1.5 and 16.26. The response to the Gospel of Jesus Christ that God commands of every man and woman and child is belief. So unbelief is disobedience to that command. We saw in Isaiah 28 that the Judahites had created for themselves a refuge built out of falsehood. A safe house constructed out of deception. That's what men do who do not trust in Jesus Christ. All they've got when they reject the truth is falsehood. Why do we as believers need to understand 
how mankind assesses mankind, fallen, unredeemed mankind, assesses God's cornerstone? Why do we need to understand that? It's very important because it'll tell us how they're going to respond to us if we're standing firmly on that cornerstone. Since our cornerstone is rejected by men, since He's a stone of provocation, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, what should the rest of us living stones expect from unredeemed men? We should expect to be rejected. We should expect to be a provocation to this world. The one whom we represent and proclaim in this world is the biggest threat that exists to man's self-determination. And self-determination is the pathetic cornerstone upon which man's entire house of cards is built. People do not like it when you threaten to tear down their houses. But beloved, that is precisely what God says He is going to do in Isaiah 28. In a torrent, in a flood, a raging flood, and a pummeling downpour of hail, He is going to destroy the household that man has built for himself. And there is only one safe place for men to stand, and that is upon God's chosen and precious cornerstone. Those who are standing on Him will have no place that they want to be except right there. And they will not be disappointed. Those who stand anywhere else will be swept away. God has graciously opened our eyes and He has laid before us His accounting ledger. We have come to know the One who alone is worthy of all of our trust, all of our affection, all of our allegiance, and all of our obedience. (laughs) Beloved, we're not looking around for a place to stand. We know where to stand. Dear Father, the preciousness of the One who has become our firm foundation, our safe place, our perfect provision of well-being, the preciousness of our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our sacrifice, our priest, our temple, Jesus Christ. The preciousness of Christ is set before us by You and You say, you say to us, this is my valuation. Is it yours? Dear Father, this weekend as we men came together, we, we were challenged powerfully to get this value proposition right because it, it affects everything that we do. Lord, may we get this right. And when we don't, when we don't, Lord, would You do whatever it takes in our lives to break us of that horribly false valuation that causes us to long for anything else. That we may stand entirely upon Jesus Christ. That we may offer up to You on Your altar our entire lives, our physical bodies, our thoughts, our words, everything about us. Lord, That we may offer ourselves up to You as living sacrifices made holy and acceptable by Jesus Christ. We ask this in His precious name. Amen.